Today we'll continue with Acts chapter 4. We're going to go into Acts chapter 5. And I apologize, there is a bit of a link to the passage to be read together. And I'm apologizing that I've had you sit down once again. I'm trying to get used to a new pace that we have. But I would like to ask you to stand as I read from Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to verse 16 of chapter 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had any need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But... A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. As Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for this tough passage that cuts 
surgically to the heart makes us uncomfortable so much that I wanted to get through this passage quickly today and not have to deal with it next Sunday. Father, help us not to close our ears and our eyes to this passage, but to be open to your rebuke of any place that we may be lying in our heart toward you, toward the Holy Spirit. May it be that we would not be a congregation or families or individuals that would test you in this way. May we fear faithfully. May we respond with obedience and faith and hope and to understand this rightly according to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The narrative contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira in this particular passage is a unique occurrence in the book of Acts and in the whole New Testament. You don't see people dying quite like this in the New Testament. So it needs to be seen, and it's a unique situation, not necessarily saying that there is something going on here that is unique according to our hearts, but it is a unique narrative to see such a thing like this happen in the New Testament where something of the heart is bringing an immediate death like this. It is important to remember, though, that Acts is an extraordinary narrative displaying the extraordinary foundations that we have in the church and providing for us not just a motivation of faith and hope and an assurance in the reality of the coming kingdom through his church, but it provides the indications of the ordinary framework and roadmap of how we should look at the church today. I'll say that again. It provides indications that in this very extraordinary and powerful narrative, there are things inside of here that do teach us that are very applicable to us today of what the church should look like. I've mentioned this before that Acts is a picture of what the foundation of the church looks like with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in his work, his death and resurrection and ascension and reign being at the core of this foundation. And so everything that the church has been building off of is based upon that. And even though we are not in that time of that foundation, in that extraordinary pouring of that solid rock foundation of the church, it should create for us an indication of the shape of the church today. I mean, Jonathan, as a designer, the foundation is going to match in some way. It's going to have an implication to what the rest of the building looks like. It's not going to be, he's not going to do a rectangular building and then most times it just turns into a circle. I mean, there's ways to do that, I'm sure, but it's not necessarily the way that it works. The foundation is going to create the footprint of what is to come. And so when we look at this passage, I think it's important for us to look both at the extraordinary element of what is going on here and for our purposes, our purposes of both fear but also hope, purposes for our admonishment but also for our direction and instruction. It's not going to be a matter that I would ever think that we would lead this particular conversation of saying, listen, guys. When you go to that little box back there and do your tithes, you better make sure you got it right because you might be carried out by some of these young guys. (laughs) 
That's not the threat that we would want to present in this particular passage because of the extraordinary circumstances. And you don't see that regularly laid out throughout the New Testament. But it is a very important thing that we do have this in the particular place in the narrative that we have. There's a lot of things going on with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the preaching that's been going on, going back and saying that Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the Messiah. And then we see this conflict with the religious leaders of that day. It does seem in most of the narrative thus far that it's not really focusing heavily on the church and their weaknesses. But here is a kind of a unique introduction to another enemy of the church, which is the very heart of the people who are actively involved in this explosive and extraordinary pouring of the foundation, they're still sinners in need of the correction and calling of to repent and to believe. And I really appreciate how there is this distinction. Luke is not focused on the numbers here. It's even, I love how he says it. It says, did you sell it for so much? Yeah, for so much. You know, he's avoiding letting people getting their minds. I mean, of all the times, it's a good time for numbers not to be laid out. I mean, I'm still confused by why there are certain numbers in there, like the 153 fish in John 21. Like, why were there 153 fish? Why did they tell us that? Is there something important about that? And I don't know yet if there even, even is a purpose to that. But we don't even have that opportunity to be distracted. That's not the focus. It's very clear in what Peter is saying here that this is an issue of the heart, not an issue of the amount. But it's using external circumstances and the conflict of those external circumstances to highlight for us an internal issue that we need dealt with. Before we get too much further in this narrative of the church, it's important for us to go to the place that God has always wanted in the very beginning. He's wanting our hearts to be cut. And whenever you talk about people's money, that's when things start getting really serious. When you start admonishing one another about our stuff and our money, that's when you really get to see where people are and how they respond. If they respond with defenses and being really edgy, then there may be an indication there that one, they maybe had some past abuse and they're a little concerned about people getting in the business they don't need to be, but it also may be because they have their, the truth of their heart is really what may be being exposed. So this is a difficult passage to go into, but it's an important passage and it's a grace for us that before we get puffed up and thinking, oh, look at all these, the Pharisees doing this and the Sadducees doing this and the the leaders and the, the Romans are doing this and that. Look at all the things that are going on in the outside of the church. These poor noble people here having to deal with all the suffering of their persecution. God is reminding us of what his primary goal is, and that is the conquering of our hearts. This is a contrast to give us an example of what we really need to be focused on and what we are needing to do. And so therefore, we have this framework, we have this this roadmap for us to think about how to encounter these things because it's really bringing it home for us. So if it is an extraordinary, it is a unique situation. It isn't prescriptive in the sense that this is telling us that today we need to all sell our properties and to share it amongst us. There could be a time and a place where that is necessary. It is actually teaching us that we should have that willingness if necessary 
But we see here very clear indications that we still have this teaching of ownership. Peter made that very clear to Ananias before he breathed his last breath. And so this isn't a prescriptive thing. That This is a, a necessary thing of obedience that you have to do this particular practice. But it should be that our hearts are in that particular place. But what he's really focusing on here more than anything has to do with the integrity of our participation in the service of God. And that's not something that's easy to see. It is something that it's not something that I can or any of us can really make a full indication of that by our observations of one another. We can only admit to it ourselves by the work of the Holy Spirit. But in this unique situation, we have insight in this extraordinary moment, in this apostolic age, of being able to see into the heart of Ananias and Sapphira with very good certainty because we have the Word of God presenting to us And Peter being given a special revelation of this, that their hearts were deceptive. So it's a grace that we're able, it's like observing when you go to the hospital. It's like we can't see inside of our hearts. We don't want to, we don't want to open up. You know, I'm not going to go over and say, let me see inside of your heart and you open up your chest. But it's sometimes helpful when you can go to the hospital and maybe if you have the the ability to, to go and observe heart surgery. And you go in there and someone can say, hey, look what I found in this heart. Look at this problem that I had. You know, there's a, there's a clog here or there's some kind of deformity. There's a problem with this heart. And we can look at that and go, oh, wow. And then turn around and say, this could be you. <laughs> this could be the same things going on in your own life. So it's a grace to us to be able to see this. And it's a contrast. It's giving in the context that we're quickly kind of, overwhelmed by the scenario with Ananias and Sapphira, but it's first preceded by this example, and it's meant to be a contrasting example of Joseph, the apostle Barnabas, that here is one who was considered the son of encouragement. His name didn't just mean that. That's how he was perceived. He was one who was an encourager, and he did this particular act where he sold his goods, and he presented it at the apostles' feet. And then we know that this is a comparison contrast because as we go into chapter 5, it says, but a man named Ananias. And so we're com- they're comparing these two people, these two people's lives, but most of all, these two people's hearts. Again, this is a unique situation that we're able to see. We have other things in the scriptures that give us indications of what kind of person Barnabas was. We know in Acts chapter 11 that we'll get to in a few weeks that he is one who encouraged the church in Antioch to continue on with steadfastness. And that's a word that I know you've heard me talk about in this pulpit and also in person. I'm just really enthralled with this word, this covenant commitment. But he says to the church in Antioch to have this steadfast purpose in their service. And he was an encouragement to them in that for them to press on. And that was in the context of the persecution that was occurring. It was in the context of Stephen. They were in the middle of fleeing and dealing with persecution in Acts 11. And he was telling them to press on with steadfast purpose in building the kingdom. And it says that he was a good man. And he was Full of the Spirit, which again is an indication of God's work in his life and 
God's work in the church. We, this is the, the whole theme that we see in Acts has to do about the transfer of the Spirit to the church and the continuation of the Word being the center of their worship and then them called to continue on with going out to the ends of the world. Even here in this particular passage read today, as I came to the end of that passage, it says they were all together on Solomon's portico. And that even shows an image that here we have the temple not yet destroyed, and we have the church being formulated right outside of the temple. And they're gathering together at all one, and you can see this movement where it's moving out. That his presence is no longer going to be there, but his temple is going to spread throughout all of the world by the work of the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of things going on here. And so it's important to see that explosive work that's going on. But it is important not to just kind of jump through it. God intends for us, just as he intended it for those people standing there, is that we would be struck by this scenario. That when we saw this open heart surgery being performed, that we'd be, where am I in this? That we would want to know, does my heart look like this? And to pray to God, God, is there anything in me? Is there anything like this inside of me that you would do the surgery for without it leading to me to have an imminent death like this? So we should not be afraid to be drawn to great fear in the reading of this passage. But I also pray that we will be brought to the great hope that these kind of stories are here for our rescue so that we will not continue in this kind of state of where our heart needs surgery and not crushing to the end of our demise. It is important for us to look at contrast. It wakes us up. It's not a good thing in general. We don't like to say, well, let's look at the Joneses and what their life is about and compare it to us. But it it is important in the Lord's providence for us to be sobered. He puts these kind of things in front of us so that it would sober us and that we would ask the questions. And I believe that even in this day today, this particular past week, we have on the worldwide stage, we have this contrast of the church in Afghanistan. And we're looking at their particular situation. The whole world is observing what is going on in Afghanistan. And right in the middle of all of that, there are particular pastors who are having to deal with all kinds of things that are going on. The primary thing that they're focusing on is that how is the Lord growing the kingdom in this time? He believes, or this particular pastor and many of the other pastors The questions that the Afghan Christians are having to ask themselves right now in this circumstance is, are they a convert or are they a disciple? I heard a pastor articulate it like that. That seems kind of rough right now. You know, you would think, right now, let's just worry about their safety. Let's worry about getting them out, which we do want to continue to pray for that. And we do, we are concerned about their safety. The word instructs us to pray for people in that way. And so we should continue to pray that they'll be preserved and protected, especially the weak and the innocent among them. But these pastors have seen so much of the work of God occurring in that nation that they're concerned with the very same thing that Peter is concerned about. Where are the hearts of these Christians right now? I would feel very, very um, sheepish about talking to any Afghan Christian 
in that way and say, hey, are you really a convert or are you a disciple? Toughen up. I would, be, I would not feel that way. I feel weak sometimes asking that kind of question to my own family or to myself or to other people in the church. But that's where they're at because they're really looking for the grace of these people. I heard a pastor from Afghanistan say yesterday, he says, I would rather these sheep suffer hell on earth than eternal hell. I would rather them not suffer or not experience heaven on earth and miss out on the blessings of eternal life in the true heaven. I'm not butchered up that, <laughs> that quote. But you get the gist. He would rather them experience heaven, hell on earth so that there may be heaven in the eternity than vice versa. So it's good to look at these contrasts. It's healthy for us. I've been humbled this week as I've heard these stories and I've thought about them in my own life. I've thought about their call. Even asking myself a question, do I act more like a convert or do I act like a disciple? Even as a pastor, would they, if they could look into my heart and do surgery like we see here in this particular narrative, would it say you have the condition of a convert more than you have a condition of a disciple? They say they don't gauge maturity in this young church based upon how long you've been a, a Christian. But this one pastor from Afghanistan said we base their maturity off of whether they are obedient to the word of God. We're afraid to talk like that in our nation. Obedience to the word of God. That sounds pharisaical. That sounds legalistic. To them, in the midst of all that they've seen, they've seen miraculous things over there. They've seen God has worked with them in a very unique way, I believe. Their hope is the blood of Jesus Christ. They're not focused on gaining salvation from the Lord. They're wanting to live out obedience to what Jesus has done. The reason why they have sacrificed their lives and their families is because they know the hope that they now have in Jesus. They're only concerned that they would respond in obedience. And that cuts to our heart to observe these kind of things. And so in this kind of situation, here it's a, it's a little different. They're not under a moment of persecution. There's all kinds of other persecutions going on in the book of Acts. Here they're looking at particular needs and they're sharing. And it, you would think that actually in this particular moment, it's a time of celebration. Whenever you see, you can see it on um, social media, whenever people in the church do something to give to people in need, that's the thing you really like to put on Facebook. It looks really good. It's like, oh, look at all these backpacks that we did for the people who need backpacks. Or look at all these, um, these um, need pack food packs that we did for all these people who are hungry. And, and that's usually a thing you put on social media to celebrate. Look at all the good things that we're doing for all these people who are in need. And that's kind of a, maybe a situation similar to that. And people are observing that. And then right in the middle of that, something that would be very hard for us to notice, someone sold, made it seem like they were selling all their possessions and giving it to the church, but they weren't. And you're kind of thinking, well, why are they getting so upset at me? Goodness, if he gave most of it or even half of it, it was his in the first place. Why, why this such a dramatic response to something like this? Why is God, you know, if... if if, if I killed somebody for that kind of thing, you'd be like, whoa, he is over the top. But here God is the one that killed Ananias and Sapphira for their dishonesty. 
So it's very sobering for us to see this because God really is concerned most of all about our heart. These kind of situations make us sober. They make us focused. You see this going on in Afghanistan. One pastor I heard listen to in his testimony, he said persecution keeps people focused. I can't, I can't imagine saying these things in the midst of what's going on. But they're the ones that are experiencing the persecution. It's not like they're sitting in some kind of armchair situation observing the church. They're the ones who are risking it. These are the ones who are still staying there. Right now you have two groups of Christians in Afghanistan. You don't have the Baptists and the Presbyterians. You have those who are having to flee for their lives and those who are staying and sacrificing their lives. Both of them are in a very likely situation of imminent death. But that's the only divide they have right now. Because there are some from maybe an older list that is out there amongst the Taliban. that they, There's a hit list. And they're going after those particular people on the hit list. And it's understandable. All the Christians are kind of like, you know, it makes sense for you and your families to take off. But we're going to, some of us are going to stay. I mean, it's, everybody's in the situation there that if you have a 12-year-old girl or older in your household, you have to put an X on your door to let the Taliban know that you have, an, a, 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 I think it's older than 12, you have a, a girl that's, that's a teenager in your home. And it, so they'll, they'll come and take those girls. You've got to let them know, here they are, Come and get them. And if you don't let them know of that, and they find out you have a teenage girl in your home, they will kill the whole family. If there is a wife that is 25 years old or older, it's imminent, immediate death for the husband, and they're going to take the family. That's the general rules that are out there. So that's what they're faced with, and that's all Afghans. Not just the Afghan Christians, but particularly the Afghan Christians. And so that's why all of them are trying to leave. I mean, a lot of Afghans are trying to leave. But some are willing to stay. And it's these that are willing to stay that know that they and their families are at risk of death. But something is more powerful. They've had something go on in their heart. They've had the Holy Spirit direct them in a different way. That they're willing to risk tremendous things. For what? For the very same thing that was going on here. In chapter 5, it says that in verse 17, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of, them, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. These things occur to shake things up. You have a group of people who are kind of like, man, I really respect what they're doing there, but I don't want to be a part of that. And then you have other people who says, I believe. Let me join the movement. And we get that on a light case with homeschooling. We get that a lot with people. They're like, it's like well, you know, I really honor what you're doing. And they find out that we have a lot of kids. They go, wow, that's amazing. And then they, oh, you homeschool them too. It's becoming a lot more common now because of circumstances in the past couple of years and more and more people are homeschooling. But for a while there, it seemed like any time that would happen, people would say, man, I really honor you in that, but I would never want to do that. 
Well, that's lightweight compared to the things that are going on here in Acts and lightweight what's going on throughout the world as the church is being persecuted. But it's in those kind of things where signs and wonders are being proclaimed and people are coming to the Lord. That's why people are staying in Afghanistan. That's why they're there in the first place. They've already taken on that kind of risk to their lives. Even though the military has been there for the past 20 years, they've still suffered persecution. They've suffered persecution that is unimaginable for us here in the States. One of the pastors that I heard speak yesterday was talking about, he's a Western man, I'm pretty sure he probably grew up in the United States, and he ended up marrying an Afghan woman, and he's a pastor there in Afghanistan. And for a season before they made their home and their full-time residence in Afghanistan, they were able to come back to the States for a little while. You may have heard of this testimony. I don't think anybody's heard of his name, and I'm glad that no one knows his name. But he was here for a while because his work brought him back here. And his wife one day woke up and just started pleading for, to him, we've got to go back to Afghanistan. And he's like, what are you talking about? We're able to live our faith here freely. When we were in Afghanistan, every single day we had to fear for our death or separation or even worse when we were there. And she said, but the Christian church in America, they're being lulled asleep by Satan's lullaby. And our souls are at stake if we stay here. We've got to go back. There was a contrast there that was unsettling for her. She saw the sincerity of the faith there more than she saw it here. Now, I want to say that you know, I don't believe that that's the full condition of the American church. But I think it's a pretty good assessment of it in, at large. I don't know the family that's visiting with us today, but they, he was determined last night, and I don't know what he'll judge of us by the days over or in the few weeks ahead. But he's like, I can't find a faithful church. It drew him to the internet. I'm going to gotta find one. I don't know what his rules are for those the faithful church, but I get what he's saying. It is a challenge out there, and, and this pastor's wife saw that. Now I don't think that it's like by the end of this sermon, I'm hoping that we all pack up and we're gonna go to Afghanistan. <laughs> so that we could not be lulled asleep anymore. I think we can observe these contrasts and situations, and we can be woke up. Like the people here, there were people who came to fear of God and came to faith and hope in Him because of this, the observation of this extraordinary contrast of hearts. We too can observe this situation along with the things that are going on in our life and I believe that we can be cut to heart and we can have true heart surgery and things can be transformed for us for a hope and greater good. So what do we do about this? How do we go to the right place to get that heart surgery? What can we actively do other than be on the internet and reading things like I've been reading in the last couple of weeks or listening to interviews of different pastors? Well, God has given us a roadmap and it's very much interconnected to the bookends of this particular passage. In the very first part of this passage, it says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that anything belonged to him was his own. And they had everything in common. And it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. 
There was this one-heartedness, this one-soulness that they had, one-mindedness that they had, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work, and it revolved around the apostles' testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It revolved around what is now acknowledged and confirmed to be the Word of God of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their oneness, their one-mindedness was based upon their devotion, as it says in Acts 2, to the devotion of the Word, to the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was their hope. It became the centerpiece of their whole life. It revolved around the Word of God. And it's the same thing as we look at the other book. And on the other end, they were one together on Solomon's portico. What that indicated was that they were all together. They were gathered together to worship and to encourage one another in the centeredness of their hope in the resurrection. I was hearing, as every interviewer did to these pastors in Afghanistan, said, what can we be praying for? And they're like, of course, you need to be praying that we can get some of these people out of there and to preserve those who are staying, pray for their health and, their, and also their, their well-being. But really what we want you to be praying for is that they'll be able to continue to gather in some way to worship and to encourage one another. That's what we really long for because that's our biggest concern is that we won't be able to follow in obedience to the fullness of God's word of what we have been taught. I have a quick story to tell you that I think is just an amazing thing and some of you have seen the post that I put on Facebook about this. I was amazed as I was reading all these different articles I started putting all these pieces of the puzzle together and I found out that there's not a Protestant church building in Afghanistan. They don't have, they have one Roman Catholic chapel that's in some kind of Italian embassy type location. But there's no church building in Afghanistan. There once was. Now, rewinding a little bit, if you go to Acts 2, you'll see that some of the people that were there when the Holy Spirit broke out and people were hearing different languages, some of those people were from probably what is considered Western Afghanistan today. So the church has been there, and even there's historical writings indicating that Thomas went through there, and there was even a northern and southern king that probably came to the Lord through the preaching of Thomas. And so there's all kinds of things. These are not Word of God definites, but they're a good indication that Thomas, on his way to India, had an impact on Afghanistan. But for the last thousand years, it's been pretty much an Islamic-ruled location. And there's not been a church building there. And in 1959, in an agreement that Dwight D. Eisenhower had with the Afghan king, he got them to agree to a Protestant church building to be built in Kabul. And in 1970, that building was completed. And in that particular building, they had a cornerstone that read this. And it was done in Afghan marble. It said... To the glory of God who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, this building is dedicated as a house of prayer for all nations in the reign of H.M. Zahir Saha, May 17, 1970 A.D., Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, they only allowed that building to be built so that the foreigners could worship there. Well, the problem with that is that as the word of God was being preached, Afghans started converting to Jesus Christ. And so in 1973, June 17th, the Afghan army destroyed that building. And it's not been a Protestant church building in that country since then. But in 1974, 
the first portions of the Afghan Dari language translation of the New Testament were starting to come together. And then in 1980, I think it was 1988 or 89, the whole New Testament was completed in Afghan Dari. Then, as you know, in 2001, there was an attack on the United States. Two buildings were destroyed, or more than two buildings were destroyed. We were under attack. We went to war. Our military has been established there since then as they're beginning to leave now. But in 2009, the Afghan Dari Bible was complete, Old and New Testament. And now the church in Afghan is, Afghanistan is concerned, considered to be the second fastest growing church in the world. The structures have been destroyed. Our structures have been destroyed. And now the structures of security and what they consider to be peace are being destroyed as the U.S. military are living there. And the pastors that are there in Afghanistan right now are thinking the church is about to boom and grow even faster. Because every single time one of these things happen, it grows. And why is that? Because the very thing that was on that building when Dwight D. Eisenhower was there to... Um, celebrate the building of that building is that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church of God and it's based on the word of God. The word of God flourished. Flesh, All flesh is like grass and flowers and will fade away but the word of God will endure forever and that word of God is the good news being preached. And that's why those people are there. They're there because they're devoted to that word. When we look at Philippians 2, and I encourage you to go back and read Philippians 2, you see a clear roadmap of what we are to do to have that same kind of devotion and heart surgery being done in our life. It says in verse 1, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of cord and of one mind. Well, how do we do that? We get that. We see that. We see that in Acts 2. We see that here. How do we do that? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a very hopeful statement there. When we start looking at that, it's saying, don't do anything with selfish ambition or conceit. Like, whoa, it's hard. It's really hard not to be selfish. It's hard not to be focused on our own interests. But it says this, it says that this is yours in Christ Jesus because of what Christ Jesus has done. We are empowered to no longer be enslaved to that. Do we delight to be in his word, to be in him, to have him dwell with us with his word? And do we want to put our minds toward this? Do when we look into that, if we were able to look into heart surgery being into ourselves, are we looking and saying, you know, I know there's some selfish ambition there. I know that there's some self-interest there. I know I tend to think about my own self and my own interests other than others. Well, it's... Not that hard for us to recognize that 
But how can we flip that around? How can we flip that around as a body of Christians? Again, I've mentioned this before. How often do we reach out to one another to ask one another, how are you doing? What's going on with you? What are your interests? What are your burdens? What can I be praying for you about? We spend a lot of time complaining about our own burdens or dwelling on our own burdens. Sometimes we're like, you know what? I don't even feel like talking about them because I don't want to get in it. I don't want to have to deal with people. So I'm just going to sit and just keep reminding myself of all my burdens. I tell you, it's, it's a very refreshing thing as I have in the last couple of days just been thinking about what's going on in Afghanistan. I have forgotten about a lot of my burdens. It's been drawing me to, I think, a, a more faithful place of thinking, wow, the, the, look what the Lord is doing. I want a piece of this. This joy that they have. See, this is what... We're told by Paul in Philippians, there's a joy. Continue that joy. And it says in verse 7, it says that Jesus was, he emptied himself, taking on the form of, form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That the work that he did to, to be able to provide this for us was taking on the place of a servant. Can we put ourselves in a place of a servant with one another, with people in our community, with our families, with how we are postured toward one another? But here's some other things that we can do as we go further in that particular chapter. It says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Here we are told to shut our mouths from all of our grumbling and complaining and our disputing with one another. Again, the Afghan church... Not, they don't have time to dispute some things that we do here in America. I'm not saying that it's not important for us to stand for truth and to watch out for wolves. Those are things that we need to do. But look at this attitude, and you know that this is something different here. That if we're of the kind of people who are not so consumed with our daily grumbling and complaining about our own lives, we're in a much better place to highlight the places where there are wolves and where there is false doctrines and heresies being taught. Because the goal here is that we would be blameless and innocent children of God before who? This twisted generation. Again, it's the same thing. People are watching the church. We are watching the church in Afghanistan. People are watching you. Your children are watching you. Your spouse is watching you. Your neighbor is watching you. We are watching each other. And what are we hearing? What are we seeing? Are we hearing a lot of grumbling and disputing? Or are we hearing a lot of gladness and rejoicing? Again, in Romans 12, verse 16, it says, Live in harmony with one another. Well, how are we going to do that? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, verse 16 through 18. 
We are to find ways to associate with the lowly. That's where we should be going with our place of humility and servitude. That we're not focused on the haughtiness of our own lives. And not to be wise in our own sight. That means we need to have people around us speaking into our lives. And that's a hard place. That's one of the reasons why I was telling us, like, guys, I, there's a, there in some way by being a lone elder right now, it's, it's like, oh, you know, I can do things without having to get other people to, to, to agree with me. I can do this or that. I can just go ahead and do that. But we can see here in the Word of God that when we are those who are not listening to the wisdom of other people, we're going to fall into this place of haughtiness and pride. And it's going to be a shame before the world. We will not be those that people will honor and respect as they look into the church. It will not be an honorable thing. But we must be in a position where we're willing to hear the counsel of others. We need to seek that out. When we're making significant decisions in our life, we need to be those kind of people that, hey, I think I've got this figured out, but I really would like to lay this out before you. Could you listen to me for a second and give me some counsel? Am I looking at this wrongly? Could you help me with this? Could you help me with that? If you're going to talk about yourself, put yourself in a humble place saying, I know there's a possibility that I'm missing something. Would you please speak into my life and give me direction? This is what the Bible instructs for that oneness of mind. We don't have to move to Afghanistan to begin to practice the very things that will create that oneness that Jesus Christ prayed for When he faced his greatest difficulty, which was the cross in the high priestly prayer in John 17. As your homework, go home and read John 17. I know I've told you that before. Go read all of John 17 in the high priestly prayer. The reason why that's so important for us to read that and for us to know that is Jesus Christ was praying for us before he went to the cross. And all the work that he accomplished on the cross was for the purposes of the things that he was praying for. And in that thing that he was praying for, he was praying that we would be one in mind. But you will look in there, count how many times he talks about to be unified in the word. To be kept in the word. To be kept in his name. To be kept. And what do we talk about? What does it mean when it says his name? It means his power and his authority. And he is praying that that will happen. And there's a lot of prayers that you can read that have been written throughout the ages, but I promise you that Jesus Christ's prayers will come to fulfillment. And he made it so when he went to the cross. The question is, do you want? Do you want this? One of the questions I thought about asking in the beginning of this sermon, like I normally do when I ask questions, is if you knew you were about to face the persecution that they're facing in Afghanistan, what would you do to prepare I know what I would do if somebody asked that question of me. I'm thinking, arm myself. Now, the Afghan people are having to be armed too. The, those fathers that, and the husbands who have wives that are 25 or older, they're, they're giving them guns as they flee their homes and saying, use it to kill as many as you can and then kill yourself. They, they feel pretty hopeless in that particular state. There's only so much you can do with a gun. There's only so much food that you can store up. But the word of God 
is eternal. The hope and the love that Jesus Christ has for these people, they are ready to face death, just as Jesus faced death, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And that is what is really at stake. And we have the blessing of receiving the instruction from Paul, which is the word of God in the book of Philippians and in the book of Romans, to look at these very basic ways to start getting prepared. Because the day is at hand now. And the hope is at hand now. The power of the cross and the power of the Spirit is at work now. It is good to look at the church in Afghanistan so we can be refreshed. Look at what God is doing. And we can beg out, Lord, give it to us. Pour it out upon us in this place where we are in this age. Pour it out onto us. We may have to repent, but we can believe. As we go to this table, it is a table for those who repent and believe. Jesus Christ has the living bread. And it is through his blood that we are washed. Let us be glad and rejoice together. Let us pray.